And you're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. Tonight, we're talking about Wes Craven's 1989 horror comedy, Shocker. Our dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. The middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war. No great depression. We're on a mission for God. I'll buy that for a dollar. Welcome to the party, pal. What's for the smile on that face? All right, sweethearts, you heard the man. Pull him out. Come on, let's have him. I will show you where I have made my home while preparing to bring justice. Then I will break you. How great the spiritual war. How great depression. It's our lives. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian. With me tonight, Jeremy Benson. Giving the thumbs up for you people that can't see it. You're actually not giving a thumbs I up. I was. You just weren't looking. Oh, well, that was so quick. What was that? Like a half? I thought you were just like. It was in my lap. That was a thumbs up. I thought you were just like shrugging like, hey. It's a lazy thumbs up. So, yeah, new, uh, new music open. That's cool. That was done by Mr. C.J. Lee. Thank so, you, Mr. Yeah. C.J. Lee. Yeah, that was awesome. We'll uh, have a link or something in the show notes. So if you like it, you can go check out some more of his work. Love Tyler Durden quotes. Love Bane quotes. Can't go wrong. I think Bane is an underrated villain in the Batman universe. Wow. This just... Okay, what do you mean? Well, I mean, in the cinematic universe. I, I hear a lot of people complain about... Bane in The Dark Knight Rises, and I think that, I think he was a great villain. Well, outside of outside of his voice and not being able to understand him, what were the complaints? That, that he didn't have a purpose. He really wasn't a villain. He was just a henchman. What? Uh, Bane should have been stronger. He should have had more of a reason. I don't know. It was just, uh, people just like to complain. Oh, you're talking to henchmen because I, of that I thought he was a great villain. I thought Tom Hardy did a great job. Oh, Tom Hardy is always spectacular. He's 95% spectacular. I have not seen everything he's done. I've seen most of his stuff. I liked him a lot in Bronson. He was good in that. It was, of course, he was great in Bane. That's I even nice. like Bane's voice. I didn't have a problem with it. I think I had more of a problem with Batman's voice. I did after everybody made fun of it a whole bunch, and then it kind of, <laughs> it's kind of hard to take serious because it's like, well, I can only watch that funnier die skit so many times and then not think of that while I'm watching this film. So yeah, but we're not talking about Batman. We're actually, what, what are we here to talk about? What are we doing? Shocker. That's right. Wes Craven, 1989 horror comedy. Shocker. We just watched this film. We watched the commentary as well. Uh, Scream Factory put out a uh, really gorgeous Blu-ray. Tran- yeah, transfer looks great. Yeah, it, it almost cool. it almost looks too clean for a horror film. It's like wow. Yeah, it, it looks really clean because when you get some of the effect shots, those are a little fuzzy. But when you go to the ones that are just like this is what we shot. Well, I mean, thinking about no like how they did the effects, it's like hey, you guys should be pretty proud. The effects work's kind of iffy in this. Well, they, they kind of they ran out of budget, though. Well, he said that they had the plan was this new CG stuff was coming out, and they were going to try it CG, and then that didn't work. So they had to go back 
and do all of the effects in the last two weeks optically. A new motion uh, <laughs> motion <laughs> tracking camera. camera, yeah. It's like, oh no. Yeah, this was the first time I'd seen that movie since like, man, probably early 90s when it came out on VHS. So I bet you this transfer looked incredibly gorgeous to you then. Yeah. From VHS to this Blu-ray. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember the last time I saw this. It has, it's been a while. It's not one I, I revisit that much. It is insanely, um, it's insanely goofy. <laughs> it's, you know, Craven's experiment into comedy. Uh, let me ask you this. Just I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there. Did it feel kind of like... Let me say that again so my voice doesn't sound like a 14-year-old in puberty. <laughs> Did it feel kind of like Wes Craven trying to make a Sam Raimi movie? Kind of the splatter gore, splatter comedy, whatever you call it. Let me answer your question with a question. Was it Wes Craven trying to make a Nightmare on Elm Street movie like those sequels? Nightmare on Elm Street 4 came out. Toward the end of the 80s. And yeah. this is 89. Yeah. So it would have been right about the same time. Because it does have that sort of like late nightmare comedy vibe and look. A lot of one-liners. Yeah. Come on, boy. Let's take a ride in my Volkswagen. Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, what? Well, Craven was, was very open about he was trying to start a new franchise. Because he was pretty bitter about losing the rights to Nightmare, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he uh, he lost his rights. He gave them up um, in order to complete A Nightmare on Elm Street. And uh, we all know how big that came and all the money that was involved with that. So Craven didn't get a dime of that. Now, he was hired back on some of the sequels, like we've talked about, uh, your trilogy, the, the Craven Nightmare trilogy. Yeah, uh, one, three, and seven. Yeah, so, I mean, he came back and got some money. But he wasn't getting that royalty money. Like, every time he made a sequel, I'm getting character royalties and all that other stuff. That that ambiguous executive producer credit that meant, this is my shit, but they're going to do what they want to with it. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, and that had to sting a little bit, because, you know, Carpenter and Cronenberg, and, um, who were big horror directors at this time, doing independent stuff in the late 80s, they were getting all that. Yeah, it was you know his idea to to make a a franchisable horror character that could come back and what did, what did the movie do box office wise? I've never looked at this. I think I was reading it was sixteen million, so it was not a bomb. No, it was uh, I think a budget of like five. Decent. Yeah. No, I mean it, and it probably did well on on cable and television and it just didn't make enough money back. I think to warrant a sequel. Right. So, either that or, my guess, critically, it was kind of panned and. Yeah, yeah, did not get a very good reception. No, for those of you that are not familiar with Shocker, it is the story of a serial killing TV repairman that the family butcher. Yeah, well, he's killing people, and then there's this kid that starts having dreams about him, and the kid helps stop him, and then when the guy goes to the electric chair, he... My favorite part of the movie is, right after he's killed, he's able to, like, possess people that are close to him. Like, he can jump into their bodies and take over, and then he's trying to kill 
which turns out to be his son. Oh yeah. And then later in the movie, he he can jump into electronics or chairs apparently. Okay, yeah, this doesn't make a lot of sense. It's just kind of muddy. It's so strange because the movie is fun to watch, but I I can't follow what's going on in it. Yeah, it's kind of all over the map. Yeah, because he does go he does go from uh, even even Wes Craven said like in the in the commentary this does not make a lot of sense, but it's fun. It's like yeah, it's like this kid's dreaming about a lake and he's swimming with this beautiful woman and she's trying to find this necklace. And then he wakes up and he sits down in a chair and the chair starts attacking him. And then Wes Craven says, I always wanted to make a chair a bad guy. It's just like, that's so random. <laughs> yeah, you went on some uh, some speech about the American recliner. Right, right. <laughs> it was just like, huh, all right, that's that's interesting there. Yeah, it's just one of those weird movies that you enjoy watching it, but then when you're when you're when you're forced to like, what what did I just watch? It's hard to categorize it. Now you you laid out all those things, and that's just what the bad guy does. But that only takes us up to like the first hour in in twenty minutes, because after that he he gets thrown into a broadcast signal, and they start hopping through TVs at the end. Right, and they're interacting with pre-recorded shows. All right, that doesn't make a goddamn lick of sense, but it is a lot of fun. It is a lot. It's a lot. It's a really fun sequence. The effects are really well done there. It's it's funny. It's fast moving. And then at the end, they unplug him, and yeah. and they found they figure out that the remote you can stop and rewind. And I have no idea what Wes Craven was thinking when he wrote this movie, but. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what to say here. Well, I mean, yeah, he, well, he was he was going through divorce, and he had this very black, dark humor take on it, th- which is really weird because it does. Like now that you, you don't think comedy, well, now that you crazy. mention it, it it really feels like. I mean, I hate to say it, but it feels like Wes Craven was trying to make a goofy Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Yeah, where like kind of his legacy in the nightmare nightmare series was the scarier ones, and then this is like he's trying to make Nightmare Four with he can't use Freddy, so he's using Shocker guy, Horace Pinker. Yeah, Pinker. Yeah, who's played by Mitch Pileggi? Everybody knows from the X Files. Played Walter Skinner. Vincent's like what? You're not an X-Files fan, buddy? Dude, we've had this conversation. I'm that guy that has never seen an episode of the X-Files. That's okay. We're going to fix this, guys. We're going to fix it. We're going to give him some highlight episodes. I've, I've, I'm just not a TV guy. I'm sorry. They did movies, too, on that. I thought Mitch Pelagi did a fine, fine job. You know, he looked like he was loving, going really over the top and chewing up the scenery. We are here today to bear witness to the execution of Horace Pinker, whose unspeakable atrocities have horrified the people of this great state. He stands convicted of 52 counts of aggravated assault, 23 counts of armed robbery, and 37 counts of murder in the first degree. Prisoner, have any final words? Yeah. No more Mr. Nice Guy. I don't think he's dead. Contact. 
among you. Now, Wes Craven brings you his greatest creation. Shocker. This movie starts, and it's just a serial killer film. Sort of. Well, I mean, well, yeah. Minus the dream sequence. Okay. Which, I guess, hold on. I guess we let's talk about that first, because that doesn't make... Okay, so what what happens with these dreams? Like, because he's actually there, right? Because these characters see him. The serial killer sees him. I don't know. I'm a little confused, because there's times where... All right, like the apartment where he, he dreams about stopping Pinker from killing the lady. And then him and Pinker get into a fight. He wakes up. Oh, this is mom. That's his But then he shows I know up. It's, it's gone over so quickly, dude. But then it, No, but then he shows up later with the cops. Oh, you're talking about the second one. Yeah, and he shows up later with the cops. Yes. And they the same scene starts to play out. So I can't tell if he's like dreaming about what's going to happen or actually interacting with the present moment. Well, Horace Pinker recognizes him in the dream, yeah. Well, in in real life too. And then when he get, yeah, when he gets there with the moment repeating, you know, basically probably 20 minutes later, I got the idea that he was he was kind of foreseeing what's going to happen, so he goes to the place. But then there are moments where it seems like He's actually interacting. And he can change things. Right. But what confused me about it was that there were times that it seemed as if he was going into a dream and ending up at the place and actually interacting. Maybe we just need to watch it again. Cause I mean, because Horace Pinker definitely like recognizes the guy. Yeah. Like, they're continuing their conversation. And then... When, right before they put Pinker to sleep, or to death, sorry, not to sleep, what the fuck, it's not a dog. Yeah, well, I mean, he gets electrocuted, too. Right. Um, he he breaks the bombshell that I'm your dad to the kid. His Darth Vader moment? Yeah. Very much a couple <laughs> rips on, on Star Wars here, if you didn't notice. It's definitely, I don't know if he did it on purpose, but... It's definitely some uh, Return of the Jedi. Uh, there's, some, there's some Empire and Return of the Jedi here. I was beating you real good when your mama tried to stop me with that gun that she brought into our happy home. You saw me kill her. Don't you remember how she screamed? And how clever you were grabbing that gun and shooting me right through the fucking knee, you little peckerhead! Such a big gun just blasting away at your daddy with murder in your eyes. Like father, like son, huh? Well, he kills dude's girlfriend. Yeah. And he, the main character, gives his girlfriend a heart necklace that becomes some sort of talisman that, as Craven explains it, it's the one item that can make it from the netherworld back to reality. If you get jewelry in a horror movie, honey, you're going to die. <laughs> You're going to die. And it's you just... have to give it to somebody because it's going to have magic. Like, you can put it on a camera lens and then jump through that camera lens. Now, I was a little confused on... It looked like Horace had been worshipping electricity in his jail cell, or... How does his son have the same electric powers? What do you mean? Well, 
Horace, I've, I assumed, was like preparing for this by whatever he was doing with the TV. You know, the, the scene where he's on his knees. Yes. It looks like he's praying to the TV. Yeah, the he's electric- got all the candles out. Yeah, and the electricity's the junk, like... Cables. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like he's preparing his... Like electrifying his soul somehow. Doing his satanic rites to the uh, electric gods. Right. Yeah. So that allows him to jump into TVs. Or I think it just allows him to... I don't know what it does, dude. I'm not sure. But what allows... His son, the same ability to jump into the TV. It's the necklace. Oh, okay. We're back to the magic necklace. It's back to the magic necklace, yeah. The one that gets thrown into a lake, and he knows exactly where to go get it. Yeah, but all he needs is that mask, dude, that he's got at his house. All right, maybe if I go look. Tell me what it is. But you can't see a thing in here, Rhino, without a mask. No one can. I gotta go back to my place. What, what are you doing? Oh, dude, you you really care about your eyes. <laughs> this guy is killing you. He's killing all your buddies, and you're like, you really expect me to believe you're going to be able to see in that muddy ass pond anyway? <laughs> I don't. know. It's a comedy though, so it's hard to it's hard to even like. Can I pick this apart, or is is this? I'm satire? not picking it apart. I'm just I'm like I'm relishing the randomness. I guess is the way to say it. I guess the confusing part is I'm not 100 percent sure what Craven's making fun of all the time. Wonder if Craven was making fun of where they took the Nightmare series. Yeah, like, instead of him trying to do one, was he making fun of what they were doing with it? I don't know. I mean, it makes the most sense. He did say this is the film that he had the most creative control of this far. Yeah. I mean... I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street, they, he doesn't explain how Freddy gets into the dreams. But the world that he builds is believable. Yeah. This one, he just, like, he breaks his own rules. He just, he's all over the place. It it really feels like he's making fun of something. I get, I get some of, like, I get the TV, the TV and the violence bit at the end. And, like, I like the little Leave it to Beaver jokes. Like, I get the, I get the commentary on television. Right. I don't, like, the whole body jumping section, I don't know, I'm not sure what that would be saying from a comedy comedy perspective, you know? No, I th- to me, like, I think that's his horror moment in the movie, like. That is one of the best, that's the best scene in the whole movie, I think, outside of the TV. It's like, you know, he, he's creating this horror character that can, instead of invade dreams, he can invade bodies and still come after you and come after you and come after you. You know, when I was watching this, I didn't realize how much Fallen... Have you seen that with Denzel Washington? Yeah. I did not realize how much that they took from this. I don't know if this is the first... Subconsciously or consciously, yeah. Yeah. Well, he said he stole it straight from the thing. Well, I guess, but at least he did something different with it. He's like, no, it's not an alien. It's a spirit. Right. But, I mean, he said even in the commentary that he stole it from the thing. Oh, yeah, but he, he adapted. I mean, Fallen's a pretty... (laughs) <laughs> I mean that's that's pretty much the same exact thing. Yeah, but uh, but Fallen is a completely different movie though. It's very dramatic and serious, where this is not. And he did call this movie the bridge to types of movies he used to make into the types of movies he makes now, which I thought was interesting. 
that's what kind of gave me the initial like seed of the thought that he was making fun of where the Nightmare series went. Because he got pretty meta later on. Yeah, he did. Maybe he was testing out those ideas for New Nightmare and things that would later go on to scream here in this film. Because you can definitely tell there's a... I mean, even down to like lighting-wise and the one-liners that Pinker gets... He's riffing, I think, I personally believe he's riffing on where New Line took his character, Freddy. Sure, I'm, I'm, I'm positive he wanted it to be a, you know, a franchise in and among itself, and that didn't happen, but by looking at his other films and knowing how, how much he puts into the writing, there is some hidden stuff here that is just for him to know. A lot of inside jokes. He even in his commentary keeps mentioning I was dealing with a lot of stuff. This is me dealing with things that I was upset about. He made some really weird uh, offhand comment too where he's like, yeah, I, just, I threw a lot of cameos in here. With Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh yeah, Heather Langenkamp is a, she's the dead body in the beginning and later in the news reports. It is weird how like you brought this up while we were watching it. The film has, like, three acts, but the three acts are, like, three completely different films. Yeah, it's like a trilogy in one film. Yeah, it's a, it's what would have been Shocker 1, 2, and 3. Man, it just keeps going back to, I think he was making fun of the Nightmare on Elm Street series, honestly. Like, yeah, it was kind of like he took a prequel, like, there was a prequel, then there's the actual Shocker movie, then there's Shocker 2. Right. It's like, I'm a serial killer, I'm a body hopper, I'm in your TV. Ooh, you know, you gotta up the ante. I mean, they all have like their three, they all have like three act structures. I mean, especially the beginning serial killer part, that's like a pilot of a TV show. It's like a little 40 minute movie. It ends. Like the more and more I think about what, I, this is like a five star movie now that I think about it. It is really long. I mean, but he's telling a lot of story. He's throwing a lot of shit in here. It is it is long though. It's almost two hours. Nah, I, I just think we were watching it late at night. Eh, I mean, worn does. out. It, I mean, it's not like we planned we're gonna do Shocker on. We're watching it on Sunday night. I mean, this was like, oh, we're we gonna do a fucking podcast on uh, <laughs> <laughs> Apocalypse Now. Fuck no, we have to watch eighteen versions of it. Oh fuck. Okay, Shocker. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, I mean, hey, come on. If you're going to do Apocalypse Now, you got to do the Redux, too. I mean, come on, man. A little behind-the-scenes story here. This is the kind of conversations we have about topics. Jeremy. Dude, let's do, like, a overview on John Carpenter flicks. Brian. No, we can't do, like, an overview. We have to do, like, a movie. And then we have to watch that movie and analyze that movie and write down notes about that movie. We can't talk about more than one movie. But we're going to end up talking about more than one movie anyway. But we got to have information. Okay. I'm anal, all right? You know, there's certain <laughs> things that got to go a certain way. We got we to gotta analyze things in an in-depth manner here. You know, one thing we haven't done yet is we haven't talked about the fucking amazing cinematography, really, in this film. The I'm not talking about the effect shots. That's its own thing. But, like, just in terms of the lighting, I mean, it's got that very late 80s look to it. But, man, it's so good, dude. Like, I really like the dream sequences with the dead girlfriend. I think those are all standout scenes, especially, like, in the bathroom when he opens um, the curtain back and she's standing there and she's all bloody. And the lake. 
Yeah. When she like dollies across the lake. Yeah, it's so creepy and so atmospheric with the mist. Yeah, I've just never been a fan of that kind of flat lighting, you know what I mean? That late eighties, everything is lit. I don't know. I'm a I'm a big I don't know. I like Dean Cundy and HMI lighting, you know? It's <laughs> like there's something about it that's like comfort food to me. You know, it's just like, well, this is how this these South Cinema looks at this time period in time, and it's. I, mean, I love it in like comedies or dramas, but I don't know something about horror films. I always want shadows, and I usually kind of tune out if I'm watching a horror film and it looks like that. I'll tune out of the cinematography and start looking for other other stuff to pay attention to. Do you see that fucking Zolly they threw in there in the prison? Yeah, yeah, buddy. That made I, me laugh I my love, ass off. I love Zollies. I, I just, I feel bad because like... Hey, director, hold up. Explain what a Zollie is. It is when you zoom in and dolly out or dolly in and zoom out at the same time and it creates a axis shift on your focal point. It's really fun to look at. It's fun to watch. and But the problem is, is like, it's the Wilhelm scream of shots now. Yeah. So it's like anytime you see it, you're like, oh, Zollie. Well, yeah, Spielberg <laughs> fucked that all up for everybody with Jaws, I think. That's the that's got to be the most famous Zollie of all time. You think? Oh, dude, yeah. That's the one every that's every film student knows that one. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, I know that shot. Roy Scheider. I thought there was a Scorsese one that... I'm sure there's one, but I mean, really, the Jaws and... is the, Oh, my God. Have you ever seen Quick and the Dead? Probably. Sam, oh, Sam Raimi makes fun of. He's got. He's got to be making fun of the Zolly, because he Zollies every shot. It, there's a shootout between um, Gene Hackman and like Sharon Stone, and it's like twelve Zolly shots back to back. It's insane. It is perfectly used in Jaws, because it does. It gives that sense of like everything is crashing down on this character. That's one. Of, that's probably one of the most famous shots in, in film history, man. Like that's got to be a top, top thirty shot, top fifty for sure. I, I mean, I just watched it the other day with my kids. But when you said that was your favorite, you think that's your, you think that Spielberg's best film? I, that would be an interesting discussion. I mean, it's got to be in your top, your top five favorite. Oh like, yeah. Like I mean, if it's not, then we're not watching movies the same way. Schindler's List is really good though. Yeah, I can't watch that too often though. That that uh, that's fuck. I mean, that's my, a real horror film. Most of the like you know the critics list. That's his best rated movie. So I thought it was interesting that you chose Jaws as being his best movie. I mean, Schindler's List is good, but it doesn't have a giant shark. Yeah, Jaws is fucking fun. I mean, like, <laughs> look how hard is it to make a movie, a good movie about the concentration camp and like something terrible fucking happening that happened in history? Like, really, a lot of work's already done for you. There's an emotional core that's already just plucked because it's a real event. Jaws is a movie about a giant fucking shark, and he made that good. It's about a giant shark. But how hard is it to make a giant shark movie fun? I don't know. Look at the sequels. It was pretty hard. <laughs> oh, I like two. All right, two is good. Two is good. Yeah, I, I did. Like I did get much. into an argument with somebody the other day trying to claim that part two was better than part one. What? How could you say that? What's your favorite? Uh, Jaws for the revenge. <laughs> I really like. That. <laughs> I really well, like this, that one. This is the same person that said that uh, the Omen three is the best Omen 
because in the Omen one, he's not scary. He's just this kid. But in the Omen three, he's scary because he knows what he's doing now. I always thought the Omen was creepy as crap. I man, that's Richard Donner's. That's one of his best movies, man. That's a that's just a classic. Damien, Damien. Oh, you want to talk about? A Watch good this, score. Damien. You gotta do that too, Gregory Preck. Oh man, that that is a good movie. I like the sequel too. The sequel you remember too. that movie we watched called Shocker? We were gonna do a podcast. Oh yeah. On? All right. So man, fuck. Sorry, I got totally sidetracked. We did get sidetracked. This is what happens when you bring up Jaws or something like that. It gets off into uh, <clears throat> it gets off into tangents. So hopefully that wasn't too bad to listen to. Can't imagine it was. It was about Jaws. Yeah. I mean, really. Oh, I did think it was interesting that even though Craven had a lot of control in this film, he still got his ass kicked by the MPAA. Oh yeah, and he had to use the he had to use that soundtrack. Yeah, that was that was not his choice, and you can tell he was not happy about that. Yeah, well, it dude, it is dated as fuck. It's like that late eighties rock. Like yeah. hairband yeah, rock. Hairband? Is that what it is? Hairband rock? Yeah, that's just. Yeah, he, how do you put it? I had never been a fan of rock music to score a movie, and yeah, I'm still not. <laughs> <laughs> I still like score, had, score better. It had something to do with the, the, the finance people were connected with yeah, some the, record label. Yeah, the guys at Alive Films, uh, one of the uh, executives there was also Alice Cooper's manager. Guy gets around. He dabbles, right? He dabbles. He's like, yeah, I manage Alice Cooper. I make films on the side. It's just a side gig, okay? And we we put Alex Cooper's music into the film so that we can sell more albums and make music videos. That's right. Uh, Which they did. We did not watch the music video that was on the Shocker Disc. Mr. Nice Guy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a terrible movie. It's a mysterious movie. It has, yeah, it has a lot of Made issues. Made by a very talented guy that feels like it's a hidden message to someone. <laughs> it's all I can say. It's like, hey, his kids are in it. There's. I did like that little kid, the little girl, the little 10-year-old girl that gets possessed by the pseudo killer, and she gets in the big dump truck, and she's like, come on, fucker. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, that had to be kind of, kind of awkward to shoot. The mom there, be like... Okay, um, can we hear the line, please? I wish Craven was more focused on what his message was. I don't know. Maybe he was focused, and I just don't get it. Knowing his body of work, I feel like he made what he wanted to make. And, I mean, who knows, dude? It could have been as very well as some producers coming to him and saying... Make a Nightmare on Elm Street type movie. And him just being like, fine, this is what you get. It did have Wes Craven's Shocker in the front. So, as you know, those name things are important. Now, I I honestly believe that now that I'm thinking about it, I think Wes Craven delivered a movie that, for him, was making fun of what they had done to Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, it it definitely has satirical takes. It's just... It's kind of hard to determine how much. Yeah, well, yeah, and like what he's taking shots at throughout the entire film. Like, I definitely get the TV thing. I can get the slasher stuff. I'm a little confused about the dream stuff. I think it's straight up, like, just taking shots at what New Line was doing 
with Nightmare on Elm Street. I would like to think he was doing that instead of it doesn't matter, people will watch it because they're watching that shit, then they'll watch this. No, I mean, because he did seem he did seem passionate about the movie. Yeah, it's not like he was just like, oh no, this is some fucking piece of shit I did for some fucking money. Right. Well, I mean, nobody's gonna come out and say that, but he did seem passionate, and he did keep saying, "There's some," you know, he, the way he kept talking, it seemed like there was a lot of inner jokes and his own thoughts on th- stuff being played out in jokes. Like the very beginning of of Craven's career sounded like it was really rough. And I feel like it, this maybe was like a little bit of a release for him. I always felt like listening to his conversations around like before Scream, he always kind of felt he deserved a little bit more notoriety and withstanding inside the film industry than he was actually getting. After what? Before Scream. Oh, before Scream? Yeah. Because I think and he was kind of known as like that horror master. He was getting, you know, these little budgets to go do Shocker and Deadly Friend and... People Under the Stairs, his next next movie after this. Just, you know, listening to interviews with him and always kind of got the hint that he... The sense that he, you know, he, he wanted a little bit more notoriety inside the film industry, not with fans. Inside the film industry, couldn't you see a lot of people that would be like, I can't believe he let the rights go on that. He totally fucked himself. Like, yeah, kind of becoming the joke without meaning to be inside of that elitist circle. I mean, you know, he was a filmmaker just wanting to make a film. And any filmmaker at that stage would know that, yeah, you'll give away your shoes if somebody says they'll give you the money to make the film. And nobody expects it to become a multi-million dollar franchise yeah he did yeah he never i guess after nightmare on elm street he never really he never really had that other that other franchise to keep going he never started another one he wasn't getting those royalties whereas a lot of other filmmakers were until until scream came along which kind of catapulted him into into ultra mainstream like at that point he became a household name yeah like, even non-horror fans at that point. Like, oh, Wes Craven's the horror guy. Break it. Now, wait a minute. You don't have a warrant. This is breaking in, or you know that. That place has already been broken into. We're investigating an apparent burglary here. Right. You're right. These are the worst cops ever. Like, there are no other cops that are this bad in cinema. Do you think it's just hard to write, like... When you're not doing a cop cop movie, do you think it's just hard to write cops doing things? I definitely thought the cops were jokes. Because there's that one scene where that guy, like, busts, like... So the main character's dad is, like, the police guy, the chief of the police, and he, like, busts in the door right after, like, Pinkerton goes into the outlet. Smells like the goddamn electric chair in here. Smells like the goddamn electric chair here. And there are moments where, like, the killer is just, when he starts body jumping, he's shooting up everything all over the place, and there is not a cop in sight anywhere. We're not talking like a, you know, like, you know, somebody with a knife. Knives don't make noise. But this guy is like, he must have loaded that gun in that park like five or six times. Fired like 30 to 50 shots in that fucking park. Not a single cop shows up. 
Wes was really proud that that's a scene where the six shoot six bullet revolver only fires six shots before he has to reload. He was like, "Look, we definitely did not fuck that up. I was sure that we counted six shots." And then we're like, "Hey, you got to go to that shot of him reloading right now, just so the audience knows." But yeah, so yeah, worst cops in 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 cinema history. Jonathan walks in. His girlfriend's just been brutally fucking murdered in it in his apartment. And, and the they just allow him to walk right into the the into the crime, crime scene. scene. Yeah, nobody even follows him in. Well, no, there was that one guy that's like, "Hey, buddy, hey, uh, 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 all right, all right, fuck it, go ahead." It's, I mean, you live here. Dude, what's he What's he doing in there? I don't know. He's checking out the body. Well, the cops are like, "Look, the bad guy wrote a note." And he signed his name. We know who did it. Book shut, boys. I I enjoyed it. I think it's a lot of fun. If you, if you're into like satire and horror and comedy, good release from uh, Shout Factory. If you're a fan of this film, I would say you have to own the Blu-ray. Uh, the the transfer is just absolutely to die for. The sounds really good. It's got a bunch of extra features. Uh, the commentary from Craven had to be for uh, Europe because he kept talking about America like it was some crazy foreign land. Either that or he knew it was going to get released in Europe, so he was explaining it to the European audience. Yeah, it was. It had to be in a European commentary. We'll, we'll look into that, and uh, maybe we'll post something about that. It's a fun movie. It's definitely a comedy. I would not... If you're in the mood for serious horror... Definitely do not watch this. This is more in the vein of like Nightmare on Elm Street 4. It's silly horror. Like it does not take itself seriously. There's one-liners. It's 80s. It's got 80s music. The plot makes no sense. Yeah, it jumps around a lot. Like to the point that it's almost purposely no sense. Oh, did you notice too in the beginning? Did you have a hard time like figuring out how old that the Jonathan character was because when the movie started out, I thought he was in high school. And then when he woke up with his girlfriend and then they showed him into an apartment together, I was like, Oh wait, Oh, he's in college. They're living together. Well, it's because you start on that. What looks like a high school football field. Yeah. But turns out it's like a college football practice, but you still get that weird vibe. Cause they're like, there's the chicks and it's very high schooly. Yeah. Like, oh, are you getting some? Yeah, he runs into like 5,000 water coolers looking at his uh, his girl. Oh, and um, Jonathan is played by, we're speaking of uh, directors, Jonathan is played by Peter Berg, who has now gone on and directed a bunch of big-budget Hollywood films. He directed The Kingdom with Jamie Foxx, uh, Battleship, Friday Night Lights, and I think he... Uh, did something with the TV show as well as the movie. Oh, really? Yeah. He did Hancock as well with Will Smith. So, yeah, he's a he's a big-budget Hollywood director now. Overall, I think it's a, it's a different kind of Wes Craven movie. It's kind of like the bridge between, like he said, it's bridge between what he used to do and then what he began to do. Like, this was his testing ground of... Can I make fun of cinema in cinema? Can I be pre-meta? Can I invent a genre? 
yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely a lot of fun. Uh, if you're into horror comedies, uh, give it a watch. The Scream Factory uh, releases definitely good, so you can pick that up as well. Especially right. if you haven't seen it since like the late '80s, early '90s, you'll be blown away at how how good the transfer they did. All right, so I think that's gonna wrap it up for us here, ladies and gentlemen, tonight. Benson. If you haven't yet, go check out girlinwoods.com, and if you have, go watch the trailer again. And like always, if you guys want to get in touch with us, our email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. That's themoviecrew, crew is spelled C-R-E-W-E, extra E at the end, at gmail.com. It's listed in the show notes. I've had a couple uh, people ask me, like, what what are the show notes? So if... I, if you're on iTunes and you know you're looking at it on your phone or anything, if you just press the the cover button where you see the movie crew, just just press on that picture and it'll bring up and you can get the show notes. And there's a couple links that we have in there. There's an email button in there so you guys can email us right away. And speaking of iTunes, uh, while you're there, if you guys could rate us, leave us a review, that would be super awesome. Uh, it helps people find us. Oh, and before I forget, I did want to mention that... Um, Toho Studios, the Japanese film company, is releasing Attack on Titan, the live-action film adaptation of the manga. Wow, that was a messed-up sentence I just said. Anyway, you get the idea. It's it's broken up into two parts, and it's actually getting a theatrical release here in the United States, which is a super cool thing, because usually we don't don't get this stuff. It just goes straight to DVD and Blu-ray now. So, from what I understand, part one will be showing September 30th, and then October 1st and October 7th, at least here in our theaters. Now, your theaters where you are, look at, look at the show times, it may be showing more. Uh, part two is showing October 20th, the 22nd, and the 27th. Now, that's all this year, so they're coming out, you know, it's, it's less than a month. It's actually like a week, two weeks apart. I'm not the biggest fan of Japanese anime, but I'm a huge fan of Japanese cinema. Um, love Kurosawa and uh, Ishiro Honda. These, yeah, those are such awesome filmmakers. And again, I wanted to say uh, thanks again to CJ Lee for providing that awesome new open for us. That's going to be our new open moving forward. And if you want to find out uh, more about CJ and his music, um, again, in the show notes, we'll put a link in there. Guys, go over there and listen to that stuff. He's doing some awesome music. So without further ado, guys, we're going to close out the show tonight with a track from the Shocker soundtrack. This is Shocker by the Dudes of Wrath. Enjoy. Enjoy.